Well, I'm, I'm in this series on the afterlife, and as I speak about the afterlife, um, in preparing for this, and have been thinking about this for a number of months now, I often come to subjects and topics and go, okay, God, what is it you, you want to say here in your word? And and uh, I will look at and find there's some scripture that really um, just grabs me, but in this message, we're going to look at a number of scriptures, um, because I think it so applies to this topic. Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author, uh, he shares a conversation that he had with a young professional that had been attending his church in New York. And he had a church that, that um, when he was there as the senior pastor, um, was flourishing and, and, and continues to flourish. And this young man came into his office. He was impeccably dressed, very articulate. He had a, a business MBA from a leading um, Ivy League school successful in the financial world, had actually lived in three different countries before the age of 30. He had been raised in a family with only loose connections to a mainline church. So as Tim Keller says, he said he had little understanding of Christianity. And it's kind of what I said last week, we can be raised, just like when I was talking about San Francisco, I was talking about that New York metro area with the young professionals. We in our area can be raised in a, in a place where people are highly educated but spiritually ignorant. And by that, I'm not meaning it as a put down or anything like that. It's just that there are people who, who don't have an actual firsthand study and true reading of the word of God. They are basing it more on conversations that they've had with people. And so he tells a story about this guy who was in front of him who basically had that kind of background. And, and, and Keller says he was really gratified because as the person had spoke, he, he spoke about his intense spiritual interest that had been piqued as he had been coming to that church and had been listening to Keller from the, the pulpit. But he had, a, he had an obstacle, his kind of final obstacle before he, he thought about giving his life to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. He said to Keller, you said, Tim, that if we do not believe in Christ, we are lost and condemned. I'm sorry, I just can't buy that. I work with some fine people who are Muslim and Jewish or agnostic. I cannot believe they're going to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. In fact, and here's kind of the the final statement, I cannot reconcile the very idea of hell with a loving God, even if he is holy, as you say he is. And the young man um, expressed what I think is a very contemporary objection, yet not just in this age, but goes through the ages past, but especially in our age, an objection to this whole idea of of judgment and hell. And that, that's the current trend today, is how can there be that? And, and I want to share with you that it is a really good question. Listen to some of the questions that are, are out there, and you'll have them if you talk with people in the office or in your neighborhood or, or in clubs that you may be a part of, wherever it may be. Is there really a place called hell? That's a question on people's hearts and minds. And they will say, does the Bible really speak in about eternal state of suffering, pain, and separation from all that is good? Did Jesus really teach that there's a place of eternal torment where the worm never dies and the fire's never quenched? 
And seriously, here, here's the key one. And, and I, I understand this. I, I truly get it from the sense of, of our own moral sensibilities. Would a loving God really send someone to hell? How do you answer that? How do you answer a question like that? Because when you consider those kind of questions, you can see how this presents an intellectual obstacle for many, especially in our tolerant anything goes culture. Honestly, as I was preparing this and thinking about giving a message on hell, it is one of those that I thought I really would rather not do that. It's a topic I could quickly pass over because of the moral sensibilities that people have. It's a difficult subject. And, and I want to share with you, it's not something to take lightly. It's not something we should talk about glibly. It's really serious stuff. And even as I was kind of going through this message, I was thinking, well, there's, there should be some more humor and jokes. And I was going, well, it should, because we do need to laugh at ourselves and lighten up. But you need to know, even among Christians, the subject of hell is a thorny one. And not just today, but through the ages past. But especially today, when some of you are aware of the fact that uh, Rob Bell comes out with a book called Love Wins, with some real emotional arguments to it. And then soon after that, a guy named Francis Chan comes out with a book called, in response to his book called Erasing Hell. And even within the Christian community, there has been debate around this whole idea in this intellectual obstacle. And the church has a tendency, the church has a tendency either to respond by, I think, compromising to the moral outrage that our culture may have, or we move to another place, and you can move to another place if you're more of a traditionalist, and you'll, you can almost become angry and have a sense of contempt at the moral delinquency of our culture. Or you can take a middle stance and just avoid the topic altogether. So let's turn our topic to another conversation today. So why preach on this? Why do followers of Jesus insist on talking about hell? And why has the doctrine of hell been taught by Christians throughout church history? Think about it. What what would that be? There's a simple answer in in my heart. and, And that is that Christians are bound by the teaching of Jesus. If you look at the words of Jesus living in a highly educated, spiritually ignorant culture, if you actually look at the words of Jesus. And I'm going to take here the presupposition that the study and all the work around the New Testament books and the Gospels in particular have a foundation that you can believe those are the words of Jesus. And you may be in a place where you haven't done that study and you're kind of going, well, you can't take the words of Jesus. Well, I encourage you not to stop there, but to go and actually look at that because there's incredible evidence for this being before us, the words of Jesus. And so this morning, I want to really answer just a number of questions about this topic of hell. And my hope would be, if you're having questions about it, it might help answer some of those questions. It might give you some ground. And in the same case, it may also give you some opportunity that when someone does talk to you about it, you don't have to be so afraid or so fearful. You don't have to kind of back off from the topic. You can actually engage, again, in a very loving, in a very um, serious manner. 
And so the first thing I think is really important, if we are as a church and as a person bound by the teachings of Jesus, it's probably important that we take a moment to kind of to kind of go through the teachings of Jesus. And I won't be able to go through these in in particular each example, but I want to give you the flow of thought throughout the New Testament with regard to the teachings of Jesus on this very topic of hell and what he makes some statements about. I said last week that when we were looking at the the subject, especially some of these afterlife subjects, the resurrection, the the Old Testament doesn't have the word resurrection in it, and it was something that was rather vague that wasn't developed till later, and and especially in the intertestamental times there was more development, but but it became very clear in the life of Jesus. Well, as we talk about the subject of hell, you can go through the Old Testament and you'll find that the the topic is very vague. Again, it's the word sheol, which I talked a little bit about last week. But it becomes clear in the life of Jesus. The two clearest passages in the Old Testament are from two Old Testament prophets. One Isaiah, one Daniel. Isaiah wrote about 650 years before Christ. Daniel about 530 years before Christ. And both those are Old Testament prophets that if you look at them, they're ones who God gave the ability to look into the future. And I found this interesting as I was doing this study, that Isaiah... In his last chapter and in his final lines mentions, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 22 through 24, he writes this, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, which people need to understand. We get this kind of sense like, beam me up out here in heavens, out here somewhere. God is going to renew this earth and the heavens. He goes, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure? From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow before me, says the Lord, this time of judgment, or all will come before him. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me, and the worms that eat them will not die, and the fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome or abhorrent to all mankind. It's only used that word loathsome or abhorrent only twice in, in the Old Testament. And then the final chapter in Daniel, some 100 years after Isaiah writes, again in his final chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, he says, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, which you've heard the book of life maybe before, this is the book that it's referring to here. He says, anyone whose name is written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will wake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, those who are wise, will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead. Many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end, and many will go here and there to increase knowledge. God's unveiling a truth in the Old Testament. There are hints of this doctrine, but they don't become clear until the time of Jesus. And you may go, well, that seems kind of weird if you haven't understood this. And God is working with, with the children of Israel, raising up to be adults. And through that time, he continues to reveal more mysteries, unveils himself. We even find it in the New Testament. There's a mystery that Paul talks about that's unveiled. So he's doing the same with our understanding and fullness of, of not only God, but actually the ages to come. And so when you come into the life of Jesus, you can look at, for instance, instance, one doctrine, the word Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you see hints of it, you see all kinds of things in the Old Testament, once you see it really clearly in Jesus and in his life and his teaching. And then you go back and go, ah, 
And there's the same thing when it comes now to this whole idea with regard to the concept of hell, that as you go back, you go, ah, I see hints of that throughout the Old Testament. And so here you have the teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus, which comes into greater focus. Now I think about this and I say, you know, if I was going to find um, some more information, for instance, let's say I was really into pop music. And I really wanted to talk to someone who knew something about pop music. I wouldn't probably go to one of you. Well, maybe, maybe there's someone here. But I'd, I'd probably want to say, Justin Timberlake, would you tell me a little bit about how you do one of those moves? Right? Or if, 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 I, if you want to know about downhill skiing and you want to go really, really fast, and I held a seminar, how many would come? You'd, prep, you'd laugh just like you did. But if Lindsey Vaughn came here, you'd probably go, right? You see, when someone speaks with authority and experience, you kind of say, I should probably listen up. When you come to Jesus, Jesus has a leg up on all of us. Think about it. If you were to think about the person who has known so much for this love and grace and all these truths that you know, people say, he's such a great teacher, he's such a good teacher, you would think you'd want to come and listen to him about potentially this topic. We're told in John chapter 3, verse 13, no one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus was quite clear that he had a concept and understanding of heaven and earth and understood that there was a place called hell. And so in this look at Jesus, we're looking at someone who has the authority and experience to be able to talk about this with some credibility. In fact, he speaks with great confidence about the place called heaven. At one point in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, he says, I don't want you guys to have your hearts troubled. I don't want you to be anxious now that I'm going to be leaving you and giving you the Holy Spirit. I want you to know that if you who believe in God, I want you to believe in me also. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And he spoke with such confidence about these things. And so here's what he had to say about this idea of hell. The preeminent teacher of love and grace, which we all kind of go, yeah, he's the guy on love and grace, is also the preeminent teacher when it comes to this matter and topic of hell. You wouldn't realize that unless you really studied that and looked at the words. More so than Daniel or Isaiah or Paul or Peter or John, all of them put together, he speaks more about hell than they all do. Matthew chapter 22, verse 33. Jesus is standing before some religious hypocrites, and he declares, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? He uses the word Hades. That's used in there. It's this idea that was a place where people were consigned forever to a place of torment. Matthew eight twelve. To those who had rejected that rule of God, his kingdom, those who were supposedly subjects, he's speaking to the Israel and people who had been a part of Israel but really rejected the rule of God. 
Jesus said, you will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You thought you were in, but you're really out. Matthew 13, 41 through 42. To everyone who causes sin and all who do evil. Now he's kind of saying to those here, Jesus makes this claim. He says, the son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the father. What does that remind you of? That passage back in, which when it says you will be wise, you'll shine in the Old Testament. Matthew 13, verse 47 through 51. Here's a crowd who are gathered around him one day, and he's telling the story. So he loves to tell stories. Here's the story he tells. He tells a story, and he comes to the end of it, and he goes, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. And they sat down and collected good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Now you need to understand the word bad is kind of an interesting word. It's a word they weren't useful. They weren't not the kind of fish you could eat. They weren't really any good for anything. If I had time, I've been reading stuff. Um, just was reading a book by Sean Carroll and it's, he's talking about physics and time and he uh, I, I'm going to make this really quick, but it's so cool. He talks about how entropy takes place and, and the world's becoming useless. And if there was someone from the outside that could come in, it could make these, you know, this sense of entropy go a different direction. Anyway, I just thought to myself, someone did come in this world. Sin is a disintegration of everything. It's an entropy that as it grows, it makes... Not only physically, I thought was so interesting, as they look into the, the planets, into the world, and they're trying to understand from the Big Bang and this entropy, and it's all going to a sense of where it will eventually be used. We, unless God stepped in, were becoming that way. So he says he takes these fish, those which were in the basket, he threw the good ones in that were useful and threw away the bad ones that were not useful. They had Entropy, sin, disintegration taking place in their heart and life. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And now just to make sure, Jesus says, have you understood all these things? Yes, they replied. Mark chapter 9, 43 it's also in Matthew, and you can see all these number of these stories take place in other Gospels, and they give different nuances. Once while stressing the seriousness of sin, here's what Jesus urged. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than, to, than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. In Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46, is near the end of Jesus' life, he gives this really strong word for those whose hearts haven't been tra- transformed in such a way that um, the goodness is beginning to flow through them because of what God has done. There's almost this unconscious flow where they want to do good, and when they see a need, they meet that need. They're not doing it because they're trying to get brownie points from God or anything like that. They're not trying to do it because they can get other people to kind of they get the reward from people's applause. They're doing it just because God's transformed their heart. He actually stepped in. There's a heart of sin, and they said, you know, I want a pure and I want a good heart. God, would you give me that kind of heart? And God goes, of course I will. And he gives 
gives it to them. And, and they see a person who's thirsty and they give them something to drink. Or they recognize someone's in, in, in prison and they go and they be out of the goodness of their heart. They're motivated. They go to, to serve them. And, and Jesus comes at a certain point. And he says to those who have been this goodness, is, is not that they've earned their way. It's because God has come into their heart and changed their hearts. He says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, which was an imagery they knew very well. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared. Look who is prepared for. This was not prepared for any human being but prepared for the devil and his angels. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You have to discard what Jesus has to say to say there's no hell. Now, some of you come from a traditional belief where you kind of have this real sense of moral oughtness and, and it, you know, you understand that there's justice and it needs to be. And so this isn't a difficulty for you. Some of you have been raised in church and you go, yeah, I get this. Some of you have been raised and you understand and you may have even been raised in a more traditional church and your heart just kind of goes, but how? How can God do that? We live in a culture where they say, you know, yeah, come on. There's a reason for everything and that person's not necessarily responsible, Right? So how do you answer that? Well, first is you just have to look at the teachings of Jesus and say, Jesus affirmed it. Here's, here's something you need to know. Truth is truth whether you believe it or not. Think about it. Truth is independent of what you might feel about it. That makes sense? You can go to the doctor and the doctor can look and they can say, you know what, you have some cancer. And you can go, that's really nice, but I don't feel like I got cancer. The truth is independent. Jesus is stating something that you then have to say, is it true or not? If it is true, then what does it mean? How do you answer for my heart? My heart leans towards this direction and goes, God, I really struggle. How could you do, how, how could you send anyone to a place of eternal torment? My heart resonates with C.S. Lewis, who said about the doctrine of hell, here's what he said, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. That's what I want to try and share with you in a few moments. There is some reasonable support just beyond even the words of Jesus. There is another um, English author, Dorothy Sayers, who is a very broad-minded Christian thinker. She claimed that we cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. So here's my caution. Too many Christians choose to believe whatever makes them feel good And they will ignore or deny or reinterpret scripture if it doesn't fit culture's current definition of love and tolerance. And then our culture begins to be readers of scripture where the culture becomes the authority rather than the words of Jesus himself. 
And faith becomes merely a collection of fleeting opinions, always subject to revision. And that is really very something very, very different than what is called historic, biblically grounded Christian faith. And I have to just say, because I resonate with this more um, contemporary kind of cultural sense of moral, it just doesn't make sense feel. Hell is dreadful, but according to the word of God, it's not evil. It's a place where evil gets punished. Something can be profoundly disturbing, yet still be moral. Guess that? It can be profoundly upsetting, but still be moral. Hell is moral because a good God must punish evil. Justice is important to God. Just like, so yesterday, you know, my kids went to Orono. Some of you, how many you know, kids at Orono, you went to Minnetonka? Anybody, kids, you know, so... If you're watching the game and you and they score a goal and it's clear and obvious and they look the tapes over again and and they look at it and the and the refs go no nope, no goal don't you get a, don't you get upset There's just something in you that goes there should be justice here We cry for it all the time Compassionate justice yes But hell is a definition in the sense of the justice of God. It is a punishment. It is a place where God says there will no longer be evil reigning and running wherever it pleases. So here's the second thing. Is hell really a place of fire, brimstone, undying worms, gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, you know, this unquenchable fire? You, you ask yourself, is that what hell looks like? I had someone, when I was sharing, I was teaching about this, goes, oh yeah, I've always thought of hell as like this little place you get in this, you get a little cave and you're always thirsty and there's fire and they torture you. And I go, well, that's an interesting concept. But is that what the Bible is, is saying? I would answer that yes and no. Jesus uses metaphors all the time. He uses analogies and says it is like this. He uses language to help us understand realities that go far beyond what our words can actually understand and express. Right? So I was meeting with this last February. George Kenworthy and I went um, to meet with... Um, the Wileys, uh, missionaries of ours who are now down in Arizona working with Native Americans. But um, Jim and Aaron Wiley, before that, had worked with the PNG, which are the Papua New Guinea tribes. And they would work with the Stone Age kind of groups of people. They went into kind of the hinterland of, of PNG. And they were there. And when they were talking with us, they were asking them questions about it. Fascinating stories they have. But at one point, one of the stories they were talking about is they were trying to explain to these PNGs the tribe they were with the concept of germs. They didn't understand the idea of cleanliness and they needed germs. And, and, and yet they're very superstitious people. So they're trying to say these germs are like little things they get inside you and, and the people go into superstitious stuff. So how do you explain that? that how do you explain to someone in a in a stone age kind of mindset and setting who's never seen anything like this before that there's a thing called electricity and it's like bamboo if you write it's like fire that runs on bamboo and then it goes to a place and it can actually work things they're looking at you like really 
How does Jesus explain something like heaven, which we'll talk about next week, and how does he explain something like hell, except for using images and analogies that we can relate to and understand? The imagery is the best Jesus can do to share what people will experience someday. The incredible torment of soul, the pain of loneliness, the undying sense of regret, the suffering of unending self-centeredness. Everything that is removed from goodness. You go to a, a fire unit. One of the reasons they use fire. Anybody been to a burn unit before? Anybody have someone who has been badly burned? I, I, I had a, um, one of our relatives who was. It is incredibly painful. It is one of the most excruciating painful things that happens to a person's flesh. And people in that day knew that. They understood that. And so when they would talk about that, they would talk about that sense of pain in order to help people understand. And you go, well, why would someone even use fear? If someone loves you dearly, if you love someone dearly, you'll use fear, won't you? To keep them from hurting themselves? How many have ever spanked their kid's hand when they were young as they were reaching for the hot stove? <laughs> you shouldn't have done that. I can't believe you would use fear. Why don't you just sit with them and go, you know what, it's really hot and you don't want to touch it. So that really begs the question, why would a good and loving God send anyone to hell? And I'm not speaking to the traditionalists here. We could go into the justice of God and go into all that, and I'm not going to go into that place. You can read about that. There's people who will write very much about that. I want to speak to especially the contemporary culture, even our millennial age, even younger, you know, people even before the millennials, Gen X's, etc., who are really struggling with this concept. Why would a good and loving God ever send someone to hell? Have that question at all? Well, let me give you four things that I'm just going to kind of share with you. First is this. Hell is not something God wishes on anyone. You've got to get that straight right away. God does not want anyone to come under the punishment of their own rebellious choices. Like a good parent, he will wait and wait and wait. I, I remember when I would, with my children, I would, I would, I would at times say, I don't, don't do that. Or I'd give them something that I wanted to do, and I'd wait, and I'd try and do all kinds of things to get them to act in obedience to that, so they would, for their own good. And eventually I'd come to the point and go, okay, I'm going to count. Anybody ever done that before? Ten, nine, keep going down, I get to five, get to four, and they're not moving. Three and a half. Three. <laughs> two. Two and three, you know, you, you know how that is. You kind of back down and you keep, that's God's heart. It says here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, because he does not wish hell on anyone. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. People are saying, well, where is this God that's going to come in that you talk about in judgment, Peter? What in the world are you talking about? He says he's not slow in keeping his promise. Here's what you have to understand. He's not slow, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come into repentance. He wants everyone to move from this disintegration, this um, entropic kind of sinful heart, to move to a place where they say, God, give me a new heart so that you can begin to work out your love and your goodness in and through me. God doesn't want anyone to spend eternity in hell, and yet he permits it. Because he is a God who 
created us in his image and he values so highly our personality. He so has put this image in us that he knows this sense of our own choice that he allows us and will actually permit a person to move in that direction. And yet God does all he can to save us from our self-chosen ways. That's what John 3.16 is such an important verse. For God, what? So love the world that he did what? He would give his son, that he would give his son, that his son would go. This shows the deep, deep love of God. Because without a hell, you don't understand how deep the love of God is. He does all that he can, even allows for his son to be separated from his presence. I don't get it how it happens. But he's separated from the very presence of God, so we don't have to be forever. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God is not trying to keep people out of heaven. He is doing all he can to get them in. And he will admit anyone into his presence who can stand to be with him forever. Hell is not something God enjoys. So not only is hell not something God wishes on anyone, secondly, hell is not something God enjoys. There is no eternal death wish in God at all. He does not delight in any way in seeing his children in pain any more than you would see your own children in pain. These pictures of God that you find so often are actually gross medieval caricatures of God, the ones you see in paintings, where he's just like delighting the fact that he's just... It's like a, 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 a friend I know, his name Gary Moon, who talks about, he says, he's not like the old, test, the old minister from Texas who when he got preaching, you wanted to hide under your seats and hope God wouldn't find you. He shout from the pulpit, God's going to skip them like sinners across the lake of fire, like a boy skips a rock across a pond. Yeah, that's not the God we serve. That's not the picture of God that you see throughout the Old Testament, that you see through the Bible. God stops sin. He's 100% against that. He hates evil. And there are incredibly terrible images that are out there. What ends up with people thinking, here's what people end up thinking sometimes about God. The miracle is that God loves me. The miracle would be if God didn't love you. Because he is the God of love. Not a God of wrath who, you know, once in a while will let up on his wrath. He's a God of love. And he's love in this sense that as long as you um, are moving in participation with him, as long as you begin to start to open your heart and you move in that direction with him, Jesus says, I mean, you know, remain in his love just as I have remained in his love. Stay within his love. But when you step outside of it, into the laws of the universe will begin to take their course on you because that is the wrath of God, the act of wrath of God when you step out of that. In the same way that we would feel about a child predator, who steps outside the laws of decency. Hell is the, here, here's the third thing. Hell is the best God can do for some people. It's the simplest explanation of hell. If someone is to ask you, you know, what about this hell thing? I would just tell them, the, it is God's best for some people. And you're thinking, well, what do you mean by that? It's the best God can do for those who don't like him. The worst would be to make that person be with him forever. And that naturally means then if they don't like God and they don't want God in this life, that means separation from God because people in hell want to be away from God. And again, because God respects our personhood, this image, God lets them be separate forever. 
I like how Dallas Willard puts it. He says this, God is not trying to keep people out of heaven. He's trying to get them in. And I believe he will let anyone in. in his. In, and I believe he will admit anyone who, in his judgment, can stand it. And here's what Willard adds. I'm not trying to be funny. This is deadly serious business. For God, this isn't playtime. The business of being in heaven is very serious indeed. If you got there and found that you didn't like God, that would be a problem. And the truth is, most people don't like God. Think about it for a second. None of us really like God. How many like God telling us what to do? How many have ever heard the voice of God or has felt the impulse of God or has known God's law and said, I don't really like it, God. I'd rather go my own way. And if you choose to want to go your own way and be away, God doesn't force anyone back into that path. In heaven, you're going to be, this is what Willard says, right up against God constantly forever. You have to be ready for that. People who don't like God enough to seek him and spend time with him here are very like to find heaven utterly agonizing. And that says something to me. How much do you seek and want to be with God and want to know God now? It does show a condition of the heart. So you see, hell is the best God can do for someone who doesn't want to be with him. Now, in this age, when we talk about kind of people in non-traditional kind of coming in this contemporary sense, that's a perfect thing because people want freedom, right? Their freedom becomes their ultimate prison because that's the whole thing. Hey, wait a second, I want to do my own thing. But then they don't like the other side of the coin that says, if I want to do my own thing, God's going to let you do it forever. You really can't have them both. And fourth... Hell is God's provision for who we choose to be. You look so somber. Tim Keller writes, Hell and heaven essentially are freely chosen identities going on forever. In other words, Christianity believes that people have a soul that lives for them, and therefore a process that begins in our soul now can go on forever. So it really does come back to this sense that that you are either moving towards God and heaven because of what Jesus has done for us and the life that he gives us, or you are choosing to move away from him. There really are only two directions. Hell is a provision for who we choose to be. It's, It's the natural, think of it this way, it's the natural extension of the way we live. If we don't want God in our life, we don't ever want God in our life, it's just a natural extension of continually moving away from him. People will get out of this life, and after this life, the person they become now. Think about that for a second. Dallas World would say this often. He says, you know what? The only thing you're really going to be able to take to heaven with you is who you become. So who are you becoming? Take self-centeredness, this, the provision of who we choose to be. Um, Keller gives this analogy, I think it's really good. He says, it's fairly easy to see self-centeredness. The more self-centered a person gets, the more miserable they become. Anybody acknowledge that? And as their misery grows, so does their denial, and their self-centered person begins to blame anything or anyone they can for their problems. Anybody ever had to live or be really close to a person who is addicted? Especially, let's just say, let's use alcohol addiction. 
If you, if you ever are close to someone like that and you try and help them understand, you know, here's what's going on. They don't want to in any way take responsibility. They, they, they stand apart from that and they continue to drink and it, the drinking drives them to a place where they're medicating their pain so that they won't get real with their problems and they won't face up to what they need to face up to because it's painful. That's kind of what Kevin was saying. This is part of what self-centeredness is. You're wise in your own eyes. You can't take blame for anything. Nothing is your fault. Hell is just that, a self-entered ego going on for a billion years. In this sense, again, hell is just giving you what you want. Romans 1, if you read Romans 1, basically says just that. At a certain point, God gives us over to our self-centered, sinful desires. He gives us what we want, even though for a long time he has been patiently, through kindness, seeking to reach out. Nobody ever goes to hell in the Christian understanding unless they want to. People go to heaven because they love God, want God, and choose to submit their lives to God. People go to hell because they want to be away from God because they don't want somebody telling them how to live their life. They want to live their lives their own way. He is simple. Hell is simply separation from God. And listen to C.S. Lewis. I love, you may have read this or heard this before. He sheds light into this. He says, Christianity asserts that every person will live forever. Now, there are a good many things not worth bothering about if we were only going to live 70 years, but which I had better bother about if I'm going to live forever. So 70 years, don't need to bother about it, but if I'm going to live forever, I might want to pay attention to this. Perhaps, says Lewis, my bad temper or jealousy are actually getting worse so gradually that the increase in 70 years would not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, hell is precisely the correct term for what it would be. It's not merely a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will itself be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. The matter is serious, says Lewis. Let us put ourselves in his hands at once, this very day, this hour. Which helps explain, if you've ever read Hebrews, it says don't let your hands fall into, don't let yourself fall in the hands of what? An angry God. Move into his love. Say, God, there's in my heart a desire to know you, to follow you. I'm done saying I want to run my life. I want to begin to participate with you in this life, which is the decision of of what is called repentance. It says, you know what, I don't want to keep going that direction. I am now confessing before you that I have sinned. It's in my heart. It, it, It may not be seen by a whole lot of people, but if I don't deal with it in you know 70 years, it won't be a big deal, but in a billion years, it'll be hell itself. And I don't want to be there. And God doesn't want you to be there. Without Christ, without his forgiveness for our sin and his resurrection power in our lives over our sin, you go, but you know, I keep doing the same thing. I keep doing it. You know what? God, as you keep pressing into him, he will, as you participate with him, begin to remove. He will prepare you and move you in that direction. Just keep pressing into Jesus. If you're saying, well, you know, I do a repeated sin, I just want to share with you, we all do. That repeated sin is selfishness, and it just expresses itself in all kinds of different ways. But there's hope. 
You just cling to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you. And it may take you a billion years to make me like you, as we're told, though, that the moment we see him, we will be like him just as he is. That's how gracious he is. That's how loving and kind he is. He does not want anyone to perish. Without Christ, judgment and mercy await the heart that refuses to submit to him. He wants you to be with him forever. I'm going to ask the team to come and I'm going to ask you just to be seated and I just want to take a moment to just have us um, be quiet and just listen to your heart for a moment. If you would, just with your head bowed. This is really serious business. This is truly important stuff. I ask you with your head bowed, this is the kind of stuff that we don't hear often. I just want you in this quiet moment, if God is speaking to your heart, and you have never opened your heart to him, you've never repented of your sin, you've never confessed your need of him, you've never said, Jesus, forgive me, I want to participate with you. Put your Holy Spirit in me. i got to tell you, it's not because you have parents that have been believers, it's not because... In some way, you're trying to earn goodness and be good. It's not by any of those things. It is simply a choice, an admission. and It's a humble awakening that says, God, I want you now more than ever. Jesus, come into my life and forgive me and recreate me. Give me that new heart. If I just, with your head bowed, please, if you want Jesus, just raise your hand. If this is your desire, yes, yes. Yes. If you've never, ever received Jesus and you're in this place right now and you're just contemplating what I've said and you need to talk more, I'd be happy to talk with you. But if you know that the Spirit of God is knocking on your heart and you've never opened your heart before to him, it's just never made sense like this. And Jesus is, is saying, invite me in. Just simply pray, Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins, make me new. Those words that are said from the heart, God hears, and they're powerful. If you've prayed that prayer, just raise your hand and just say, for the first time, I just am asking Jesus to to take over my life. Yes. Father, thank you. Thank you for your incredible love. There is not a person in this world that has been created that you have just said, I don't care about them, that you haven't gone after them with all your heart. And I thank you for that truth revealed again and again in your word. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.